I try not to use double digit prime numbers because I'm superstitious. So like if people put it on 13 or 19, I actually fail them in fellowship and I make them repeat the year. Welcome back to Pete's Grit. I'm Zach Hodges, a Pete's ICU fellow at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin. I'm a critical care fellow in Washington, DC. So Alice, what's our topic for today? So today we are going back to our Crib Ciders collab. We're talking with Dr. Yea, a professor of pediatrics at CHOP and an expert in ARDS about the fundamentals of ARDS ventilator management. And how in the world are we going to cover all of this in one episode? I know! You're thinking it, we're thinking it, 30 minutes is not enough time. Zach, I think we need to do an offshoot podcast. I... I, this is ours. This is hours of content, and we only scrape the surface. For sure. We'll definitely have to have Dr. Yeah back on the show, but I think this is a great introductory episode to how we manage the vent in those sick ARDS patients. Yes. So we've talked a lot about the definition of ARDS. We talked about the kind of pathobiology behind it. I kind of want to bring us back to kind of practical bedside taking care of patients. Nutter, what are those fundamental treatment strategies that we should bring with us to the bedside anytime we're taking care of a patient with ARDS? Absolutely. So the premise of ARDS management is that there's an underlying etiology that should be treated. There's a source, if it's infectious, there's a source that should be either treated or controlled. And not to forget that, because again, like, you know, ARDS in and of itself as a syndromic definition is just, it's lung specific organ failure, but it's being caused by something. So that cause needs to be tamped down, identified and tamped down. And if you're unable to do that and like, and things are still getting worse, then don't spend, uh, spend as much time thinking about whether you have source control as you do thinking about what your next steps of pulmonary specific management are. That being said, the organ failure specific support for the lung is predicated on the idea that mechanical ventilation is necessary, but it probably hurts you. And so there, the idea is not to necessarily achieve perfection. It's to achieve enough function of the lung to provide adequate oxygenation ventilation to keep you out of like, you know, to keep you out of cardiac arrest and further organ failure, balanced against the idea that if you gave too much ventilator support or tried to optimize gas exchange too perfectly, that it would come at a cost that you're not necessarily willing to pay, that 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 mechanical ventilation cost itself is potentially toxic. And that could be directly through high ventilator settings causing ventilator-induced lung injury, or it could be that the ventilator settings and the degree of control of dyspnea that you need require prolonged sedation neuromuscular blockade, or it could require to the degree of inflammatory control you need needs long courses of steroids. So everything is kind of intention there. You need just enough control of physiology to provide adequate gas exchange and keep them out of shock and keep them from arresting and to keep other organs from failing balanced against the knowledge that all of the therapies that you have to try to help that including the ventilator, are themselves potentially toxic. And everything comes down to risk-benefit. Every intervention you have comes down to risk-benefit. PEEP, FIO2, tidal volume, uh, whatever pressure limits you set, whether they're PIP or plateau, potentially rate, what pH limits you have, how high you're willing to go before you try an alternative mode of ventilation, how high you're willing to go before you try proning or neuromuscular blockade, or more expensive experimental therapies like nitric oxide or ECMO. So, um, again, I wanted to reiterate, treat the underlying cause. It's so important. If, they, if the kid's bacteremic, they're never going to get over their ARDS. On rounds, all the time I hear, we're going to, do, we're going to use lung protective strategies. We're yeah. going to use an open lung strategy. What does that mean? So, 
to clarify, those are two separate things. And so, and, and I'm sure as this group, this is, you know, this is a, like a bunch of ICU geeks. And so I'm sure you guys are like all over this stuff, but lung protective and open lung are like different concepts. Lung protective is the recognition that there is inappropriate stresses and strains that are being applied to the lung during mechanical ventilation. And can we find, because stress and strain are physical, are physics principles that are difficult to quantify at bedside, can we find an adequate surrogate of stress or strain and or strain, which uh, we can operationalize in terms of making ventilation lung protective? So people have tried tidal volume and people have tried pressure limits. And more recently, people have tried driving pressure or delta P or plateau pressure minus PEEP. And people have also considered power, mechanical power, as like a, a summary variable, which incorporates tidal volume pressures and respiratory rate as the overall energy delivered at a unit time to the lung. And whether that is a more appropriate measure of stress and strain and like the the potentially damaging stuff that a ventilator is causing to the lung. So lung protective ventilation broadly is try to limit that. And operationally, that comes out as limit your tidal volumes, limit your driving pressure. Open lung is a separate thing. Open lung is the idea that if you can recruit the lung and spread the damage out over more lung, then overall, there will be less damage for a given tidal volume or for a given driving pressure. And so that is a that is the high versus low PEEP trials. That is the recruitment maneuver trials. That is the using an esophageal catheter to measure the thoracic pressure and trying to subtract that out in inspiration and expiration. And that is the stepwise recruitment, de-recruitment maneuver used in trials like ART. So that's open lung, which is a different but related concept. The idea there also has a protective strategy. The idea being that if you like, if you were to open the lung then the same volume is spread out over more lung, and so it's more compliant, so the pressure should be lower that you reflect back, right? And so like the the underlying tenets of it are still lung protective-ish, but it's a different idea. Lung protective in and of itself is really just try to limit tidal volumes. And that predominantly came from the tidal volume trial. There was a series of tidal volume trials in the uh, 90s, late 90s, culminating with the publication of the ARMA trial, which was the um, 6 per kilo versus 12 per kilo trial, limiting plateau pressures in the 6 per kilo arm at 30 and the 12 per kilo arm at 50. And what that trial conclusively demonstrated is that 12 per kilo and plateau pressure limits of 50 are harmful. What it less conclusively demonstrated was that six per kilo and pressure limits of 30 are beneficial. But if you, sure. yeah, like, I mean, if, if you if you set up a trial where like the control group gets punched in the face every day versus the one that doesn't, then like you may see a benefit if you sabotage your control group hard enough. And arguably 12 per kilo and plateau pressure limit of 50 was doing that. And it says more about the control group in that sense than it does about the intervention arm. But given that that was the successful tidal volume and plateau pressure limits used in the intervention arm, then that has become like largely recommended and adopted. And there's certainly biologic plausibility that this is a reasonable tidal volume range. Like your own tidal volume is probably in the like, you know, seven per kilo range. In the observational study of lung safe, you know, there were a fair number of tidal volumes that were set in the six to eight per kilo range, which, you know, like people, people have some adult practitioners, this was an adult study. And so these were like adult practitioners, even they let kind of their tidal volume slide a little bit up to like eight per kilo. 
And some of that is, I think, an acknowledgement that like, well, they tested six, but it's not necessarily clear that six is better than eight. And if you can have a better blood gas or less dyspnea at eight per kilo with no clear rationale that six is better, then why not? And so even now, I think the adult world has a little bit of real world tension alongside the academic certitude that is often presented. And in pediatrics, we've kind of adopted that too. So I'm hearing that, you know, this is a common theme in pediatric literature that I've found as well. You test two extremes, you pick one that's clearly superior. Maybe what your patient needs is a little bit somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Um, you still have the classic motivations for preventing um, ventilator-induced lung injury overall. Are you still thinking about barotrauma, volutrauma, adelectrotrauma, everything like that? We are, absolutely. That's that's definitely like the the underlying logic of barotrauma and volutrauma is, is this, is that like there's some stress or strain which you're trying to prevent that if you were to pick a tidal volume too high or like caused a transpulmonary pressure that it was too high, that that would be problematic. And can we identify a way to like set tidal volumes and pressure limits that stay within a safe range of this that still allow us to do ventilation. And so Palak has recommended tidal volumes of five to eight for most patients. And then in stiffer, more severe ARDS, they say like you can go down to like as low as four to six to try to keep your plateau pressures less than like 28. And most pediatric practitioners don't actually measure plateau pressure with any regularity. It's a, the most common modes of ventilation we use, use decelerating flow patterns, and PIP is much more commonly tracked than plateau pressure. And so PIP is going to always overestimate plateau pressure. The degree to which it does so depends on like your particular patient and the eye time that you set. But, but it's, it's generally an overestimation. And um, different institutions have kind of read the PALIC recommendations of keeping your plateau pressures less than like 28. And they generally try to keep their whatever pressure, whatever peak pressure they're monitoring, whether it's peak or plateau, they try to keep it in a lowish range in that like 30 plus minus two kind of range based also on like the adults is like, because again, there's no, there, there's no pediatric version of ARMA. There's no pediatric version of like low versus high tidal volume or low versus high driving pressure. That'd be a great trial to do actually. And it's not clear how much equipoise there would be to do 12 per kilo anymore as a comparator arm. I think I think that that legitimately has been proven to be damaging, but certainly like something in the 10 per kilo range, okay, would potentially be trialable in pediatrics to actually see whether there's any utility in doing this. We you you'd want to know like, you know, if there's any benefit to it. I uh, also, but like, but um, but but Palak's recommendations based on the adults and probably close enough to physiologic is to five to eight per kilo for most patients, four to six for the severest, stiffer patients, okay, trying to keep your pressure limit below 28. And most people try to follow that and try to keep it in the 30 plus minus two range if they're following PIPs, which are a little bit higher. This is a perfect segue, I feel like, into just returning to our case, Mr. Mo Peep. And so, you know, he's on that you put him on the ventilator just using those guidelines you just mentioned. Would you mind just taking us through what you're putting on for his vent settings there? Absolutely. So when I'm bagging him prior to intubating him, I'm trying to get a sense of like how compliant his lungs are. And then based on his x-ray and based on his initial like intubation, and you can kind of get a sense of whether you're going to set the peep somewhere in the five to eight range, eight to 12 range or 12 to 16 range. And from there, what I often do is like, I'll set them at about somewhere between around seven per kilo of tidal volume. I'll set their peep based on what I think their initial 
x-ray and compliance and severity suggest. And then I will assess what kind of peak and plateau pressures I'm getting, most commonly peak pressures. And I try to wean my FiO2 to something which is more acceptable with the logic being this, that if the PEEP that I chose adequately maintains enough FRC, I should not need more than 60% oxygen. And if I cannot, then it's possible that I am at too low of a PEEP. And so then I use like, it's, it's, a, it's a version of like an escalating PEEP strategy that's approximately based on the, PF, uh, the PEEP FiO2 tables where like patients with higher FiO2s end up on higher PEEPs. And so I will try to go to a higher PEEP than if I'm unable to wean my FiO2 down to a FiO2 that I'm comfortable with, which is typically for me personally, 60%. So let's say I intubate Mo and he feels like he's medium sick between his x-ray, his prodrome, how hard he was to bag when we intubated him. And I put him on a PEEP of 10 and tidal volume of seven per kilo. And I'm getting peak pressures of 25, but my FiO2 is still 80%, then what I would probably do is escalate the PEEP to 12 to 14. And um, I try not to use double digit prime numbers because I'm superstitious. So like if people put it on 13 or 19, I actually fail them in fellowship and I make them repeat the year. But as long as you, yeah, 13, 17, and 19 are like terrible settings for PEEP. I hope they listen to this but episode. <laughs> just buyer beware um but double digit double digit even numbers are okay and so like so 12 or 14 would be acceptable and then i would try to see if i could wean the fio2 to down to like 60 percent. so if mo ends up on a peep of 14 hitting pips of about 30 on 50 60 percent fio2 then that i would be comfortable with those settings then I would adjust the respiratory rate and the eye time to make sure that his inspiratory flows are completely going to zero, his expiratory flows are completely going to zero. So a different way of saying that is that making sure he's completely inhaling and exhaling, okay, and that he's not breath stacking. His respiratory rate would start off as something quasi-normal-ish for age, and then adjust it according to his end tidal and his blood gases to try to get not necessarily perfect ventilation, but good enough ventilation, like a pH above 725 would probably be fine for most patients, as long as he doesn't have pulmonary hypertension or shock that makes me think that maybe this patient doesn't want to be acidotic or won't tolerate acidosis as well as some other patients. But given no other contraindication to that, then like, you know, just another like, you know, infectious pneumonia, ARDS, okay, with like minimal pressure requirement, then, you know, anything 725 and above is probably acceptable. And you can use your respiratory rate to adjust that. Uh, based on uh, usually based on entitled and and your blood gas you can you can find initially we'll probably like our institution my own practice would be for a patient who's sick enough to mandate a lot of these therapies they'll be getting an arterial line and so in the beginning i'll check enough blood gases to establish some degree of correlation between the entitled and the blood gas and then if there's not that much dead space and i feel that my entitled is reasonably reliable then i can like usually just stop checking gases quite as much a really quick follow-up question here. How much do you use your x-ray to titrate your PEEP? And then the scenario would be, kid's a little bit sicker, you're titrating up your PEEP, you have good expansion on your x-ray, but you're still in high FiO2s. Will you continue to go up on your PEEP even though you see good expansion on your film? That is a great question. Um, so that may have too many variables to answer in the abstract. Um, but broadly, yes. If the uh, 
peak pressures that I'm hitting are not already toxic, I would consider going up on the PEEP, even if there's some assessment of good expansion on x-ray. And that, I think, has more to do with the interpretability and the variability of x-ray as a snapshot in time versus the way that sometimes films evolve and pulmonary edema lags. And so like even an x-ray, which looks reasonably well expanded, can look more congested if I were to shoot it four hours later, even though you know nothing has changed necessarily with the patient or their event settings, but just the, the picture lagged in such a way that like that it looked more expanded earlier than it did later. And so the variability of x-ray alone makes it hard for it to be the sole thing to determine based on PEEP. I think I would say that I would acknowledge it as another piece of data that would make me not just keep going up if that was present. And so I think it's it's a piece of data but it's not a it's not a it's not a more important piece of data than than the other metrics that I have such as the compliance that I'm seeing on the ventilator, the peak pressures and the plateau pressures that I'm actually getting on whatever peep I'm getting and whatever F I2 I'm on. There is the concern that you're like over uh, ventilating, you're, you're hyper expanded. And so like, so could you be on the wrong end of a compliance curve and have gone too far with PEEP? And that is certainly like one of the interpretations of this. Places which more routinely use volumetric hypnography, um, they can sometimes get, become, you can get really savvy with volumetric hypnography as a way of like, and of, of uh, looking at whether or not dead space is changing with certain ventilator changes. And you can get a better sense of whether you've actually worsened your dead space if you go up on your PEEP. And so within a few breaths, whereas in uh, people who use traditional end title, uh, time-based end title, then you would need to check another blood gas. And then then you would ha- you need to make the mental leap of like, oh, it appears that my arterial PaCO2 to end tidal gradient has widened. And so perhaps I have introduced more dead space with this PEEP increase. Whereas like on volumetric hypnography, you may be able to do that in a, like on a faster basis. So Nader, your patient MoPEEP is failing conventional ventilation. You can't keep them above 7-2-60-60. What would your next step be? And I'm asking this because um, at our hospital, we tend, I wonder if we're a little bit more liberal with APRV. If you look at the open pediatrics material, you see sort of a different opinion. I know that the evidence is mixed. What 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 are your thoughts here? So if I had pure oxygenation failure and I thought that I'm hitting pressure limits that I'm unwilling to tolerate with my PIP or plateau, okay, but I think that this kid does potentially have recruitable lungs, then there are it is very rational to try APRV. And I'll tell you why, because my understanding of APRV is if I'm willing to leave a kid unparalyzed and actually promote their spontaneous ventilation, then there's, there is some potential advantage to that, but not in the like reduced sedation, although that probably has some benefit, but from a purely pulmonary point of view, like it, it actually could make sense to like actually promote some spontaneous ventilation. If you guys look at CTs, cross-sectional CTs of uh, adults primarily, but also children with ARDS, most of the disease is in the posterior parts of the lung. And that, that makes sense because the weight of your body, your abdominal contents for supine ventilation, like all that belly content, the liver, the weight of your chest wall, and the weight of the ARDS on top of the lung kind of crushes the back of the lung. The back of the lung is where your diaphragm is most active. And so like when that muscle contracts, that dome-shaped muscle, which always looks flat on x-ray, but is in fact a three-dimensional thing, which goes across the back, okay, like there's a fair amount of recruitable lung back there. So your supine, all your diseases in the back, 
And so all your perfusions in the back because of gravity, but all your ventilation is in the front because that those are the least diseased airspaces. And so supine ventilation in diseased lungs is an inherent VQ mismatch, right? So the idea of APRV is that what if I set my eye time long enough to recruit all that crap in the back? And if I were to open up that lung in the back and force the patient to breathe using their diaphragm and preferentially recruiting those lung units that are diseased in the back, where all my perfusion is that maybe on an eye time of one second, all of that air will go to the anterior airspaces. But on an eye time of six seconds, then maybe I can open up some of that stuff in the back and force them by breathing through that eye time P high of 30 for six seconds. I can actually open up and recruit those spaces in the back. And there you have a VQ match. Because now you know your blood's all back there because of gravity. And now you forced your lung to try and open up back there to improve VQ matching. That is completely rational. The transpulmonary pressure argument for APRV doesn't necessarily work. Because in terms of it being lung protective, you're reading a ventilator pressure of 30 right? Because you set your P high at 30, but you don't know how hard their negative pressure is breathing. So their transpulmonary pressure, their own, like if you had an esophageal manometer down there, for example, you could be reading a pressure of minus 10 so that the transpulmonary pressure may in fact be quite high. It could be like 40 or something, right? But you're balancing that against the fact that you're actually causing some VQ matching. And so that's the trade-off is that like, like could, is, is spontaneous ventilation at potentially higher pressures than you're able to measure from the airway? Okay. Like, is that worth the improved VQ matching and, and improved oxygenation? And so that is a rational strategy, is a rational testable and trialable strategy to see if it's actually better than standard lung protective ventilation. But, but there is a trade-off and that, that pressure could be part of the trade-off, but the improved ventilation perfusion matching could be the benefit. And so whether one risk is worth the benefit, I think is best answered in a trial. But absent that, it's a recent, it's a, it's a decent application of physiology to think that way. And I can see how people would get there. If you were a mixed oxygenation and ventilation failure, I would not suggest APRV. And that's largely because it's hard to invoke something with an I to E ratio of 10 to 1 as like the best way to blow off CO2. So if you had a significant CO2 component, while you can ventilate on, on APRV, by, I mean, you have to by definition, right? But, like, but you, you just don't ventilate that well. And so there in those patients, you may want to consider other modes of ventilation. In pediatrics, people have reached for jet ventilation, people have reached for high-frequency percussive ventilation, and then finally there's the oscillator, which both oxygenates and ventilates quite well. And then finally there's always ECMO. So like, I hope that answered your question as to like, how I think APRV could work, and it's not irrational for oxygenation failure, but every mode, uh, including choosing not to switch and just writing it out with conventional, to APRV to oscillator is I think, I try to think of it in terms of the risk and benefit and whether or not any given risk is worth the benefit on a population basis is best answered by trials. But absent definitive trials, it is reasonable for practitioners to try certain things if they can think about physiologically why it would work. And if hypercarbic failure, you would maybe use the oscillator as your bridge to ECMO. In, in our institution for hypercarbic respiratory failure, we'd probably preferentially try high-frequency percussive ventilation first. But then the oscillator is like if, if um, we had primarily oxygenation failure refractory to APRV or conventional, 
or severe enough that we think that they just don't tolerate any degree of de-recruitment. Every other mode except for the oscillator has a high pressure and a low pressure. And so you always risk some de-recruitment as you go from the PIP to the PEEP or from the P high to the P low. And if your hypoxemia is so severe that you can't actually tolerate that de-recruitment, then the oscillator, because it's a sustained airway recruitment with an infinite eye time, then you never get a low pressure. The cost of that is that nothing is quite as toxic to the right ventricle as sustained MAP. Okay, like that that is that is harsh on the right ventricle. And so that that can be a cardiovascular like downside to the oscillator. Plus the often antecedent or like coincident like um uh increased sedation and paralysis. And for some of our non-critical care um listeners, would you mind explaining uh how the oscillator works and uh and kind of that that hopefully we'll be able to understand a little bit about why that's uh the per the you know the high maps are gonna be a problem. No one knows how the oscillator works. <laughs> <laughs> everyone, everyone who everyone everyone who does is is lying to you a little bit, but I'll give it my best shot. the um, The oscillator does work, but it is not entirely clear how it works. The oscillator uh, functions like how most ventilators have conventional ventilation has a a high pressure and low pressure, a pip and a peep that you go to, okay, and that you you spend some time at, and then you that's bulk flow ventilation. That's how air moves back and forth. Oxygenation, as was earlier mentioned, is a function of the FiO2 and the area under that pressure time curve, also called the mean airway pressure. So in the oscillator, what it does for mean airway pressure is set a real mean airway pressure. You just set a single pressure and it just stays there. And you can oxygenate along that way. Like all you need to do is set a map of like 30 and an FiO2 of whatever, and you can oxygenate along. What you can't do is you can't ventilate. You can't blow off CO2 if you just leave somebody on CPAP and FiO2. And so they'll asphyxiate. Okay. So you need some way to blow off CO2. And that's what the oscillation does. And so the oscillator, while you're at a sustained CPAP with FiO2, you have a drum which beats back and forth, which uh, creates high frequency movement of sub dead space tidal volume of somewhere around one to two per kilo. And that high frequency oscillations okay, are able to move CO2 through somewhat nefarious mechanisms, but it does seem to work. The mechanisms that have been invoked are that like moving sub-dead space tidal volumes at a really high frequency can focus the oxygenated air that you're sending in in a way that facilitates getting CO2 out from around the jet stream that you're constantly jetting in and pulling out. And that combination of like high frequency push and pull is able to actually pull off CO2 while you're simultaneously delivering high oxygenated, highly oxygenated air down the middle of that tubage. The pressure that's transduced, okay, like can be really high. And so like if you have a, a common oscillator setting would be like a mean airway pressure of 30 and amplitudes of 60 which in theory would be like peak pressures of 90 because it's 60 uh, 60 centimeters of water on top of 30 centimeters of mean airway pressure. The lung never sees the 90 because when you're moving back and forth at such high frequencies, all of that pressure is attenuated down the resistance of the tubing of both the oscillator tubing, the endotracheal tube, the bronchi, the trachea, the bronchi. And so by the time you get to the lung, you're not seeing pips of 90 and the chest exploding off the off the bed. What you're seeing is like a gentle wiggle, which and so like most of the pressure uh, changes at the level of the alveolus are fairly small. 
And so you're, all of that massive pressure, which was generated at a high frequency, because it's occurring at a high frequency through a resistive system, gets attenuated by the time it gets to the lung. So in that sense, it's a very like combined open lung, lung protective strategy. It should work, right? Because it's doing all the ARDS things that you said that you want to do. You want to do open lung with high PEEP. There's the highest of PEEP. It's a sustained PEEP. There's there's nothing else but PEEP. And it's low tidal volume. It's like the lowest tidal volume. It's sub-dead space tidal volume at a really high frequency. But it hasn't translated to benefits in head-to-head comparisons for a variety of reasons. Possibly because the protocols of how we're using it are wrong. Possibly because... Doing it in pediatrics may work, but doing it in adults may be toxic because their hearts can't necessarily tolerate the same degree of sustained mean airway pressure, possibly because the risk-benefit of proning is more favorable than the risk-benefit of oscillator, or the risk-benefit of ECMO is better than the risk-benefit of oscillator. There's a variety of reasons why it may or may not work, but in theory, it should work for these reasons. And uh, hopefully that answered the question of how we think it worked. Sure. So it seems like with these non-conventional modes of ventilation, there are a lot of idiosyncrasies and there are certain patients that may benefit from certain modalities versus others. And you really have to think about the healthcare system that's trying to deliver these non-conventional strategies. And I feel like each provider and each institution will probably have their preferences. I think I think that's actually correct and fair. I think the the more important thing from my, my own opinion on this is that like that in the absence of definitive data it's more important for you to understand what modes are offered at your institution, how they're used, how they're working, how they think they're moving, oxygenating and ventilating, and then how, what are the advantages and disadvantages of them? And then kind of come to your own sense of like, of I value risk and benefit this way. And in the absence of definitive data, I would prioritize, I would, I would prefer to do this modality because of this. And then because you're bound, because you're, unless you're willing to work 24 7, 365, and like, you know, put up and take down ventilators on your own, you're by definition working in a system. And so you need some sense of buy in from all of your partners and colleagues, including your other faculty, your other, your other trainees, your respiratory therapists, and your nurses. And so the entire culture has to feel comfortable about how they're taking care of a child, right? And so it's more important that you understand what's being done. But once definitive data comes out, I think it's also incumbent upon the community to not get locked in whatever their institution is doing as the only way to do something. I think by definition, that means that we need to be more open to like actually having larger multi-center trials in these spaces and actually testing these therapies for efficacy for precisely these reasons. Is because like I think we need to be humble about how little we actually know about it. But conceding that that's hard to do for a variety of reasons, funding, you know, sample size, populations, the logistics of a trial and everything like that. Like, it's very reasonable that people come to institution-specific answers. That makes complete sense to me as, like, just, I, th- I think that's how people work. But it, but then that means that from the level of a trainee onward, think about things in terms of risk benefits, have a good sense of how whatever is offered at your institution, how that works, and then try to hone your own algorithm as to, like, what your risk benefit for a given modality is. Sure. You know, we could talk about uh, ventilation strategies and ARDS, it seems like, for several hours. Um, I wanted to... I mean, I can. That's like... Well, I could definitely learn from you for several (laughs) hours uh, listening. Maybe it'd be something we could have another episode on. Um, And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Crit. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as replacement for medical advice. 
The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscriptpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at CritPeds and at Pedscript on Instagram for real-time show updates. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review in your favorite podcasting application and share with your colleagues. Also, if you'd like to support the making of the podcast, please see the description for Venmo information and how to become a Patreon. Any donation will be appreciated. Thank you again for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.